Greetings and, and welcome to Westminster Church. I'm Donald Meisel, minister in league with my colleagues to and with the people of this downtown congregation. And today marks the sixth in our series of noon town hall forums, all of which have been gathered under the broad rubric of voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. You might well ask, why does this congregation in league with others uh, get into the position of inviting these uh, well-known, well-versed, well-respected speakers to share their insights, convictions, and concerns regarding issues in our society? Well, the answer is that we see it as our obligation to lift up these key issues in various areas, to ask the questions that need asking, and to shun the simplistic doctrinaire answers while yet believing that solutions can be found. Certainly the matter of corporate ethics is a key issue in today's society. And we have with us today a person who, like others of you, lives the ethical questions and looks for ethical solutions in the corporate world day by day. He is Edson W. Spencer, Chairman of the Board and Chief Executive Officer of Honeywell Incorporated. Honeywell, I understand, has some 100,000 employees, 18,000 of them in the Twin Cities, and 30,000, interestingly enough, outside the continental United States. Edson Spencer is known and respected as a man of high personal integrity, of firmly held convictions about the way a business should be conducted, and the role of a business in the community in which it finds itself. I'm told, furthermore, that he's a very decisive person. And I'm glad, I know that we're all glad that uh, he decided to accept our invitation to come and be with us today. In the library a few minutes ago, he said this is uh, the toughest speech he ever wrote, so we're really ready for what he has to share. Listen. <laughs> Let me... Uh... Thank you very much. It's uh, really a privilege to be invited to join the group of distinguished speakers you had in these series of noontime lectures. I think it's an outstanding thing for the church to do, uh, and the attendance and the interest today, as well as uh, the great interest in the other speakers, is a testimony to how important the subject is to so many people. What I want to do is to talk a little bit about what the chief executive of a uh, business has to take into account uh, as he's faced with various decisions that relate on the one hand to ethical and moral considerations, what is right and wrong, and the other hand there's always the profit and loss statement uh, that poses a constraint on the management decisions that a business has to make and finding the proper balance between uh, the decisions as they affect the profit and loss statement on the one hand and as they involve moral and ethical issues on the other uh, is a very uh, heavy weight that I think those of us who are concerned with this aspect of decision-making and running a business have to bear. I want to make the point at the outset, however, to, to, so you know exactly where I come from, that a business is indeed an economic entity. 
It creates products and services which are in turn are needed and wanted by its customers. It sells its output at a, at a price that in a successful company uh, is higher than the cost of creating the output. It gets cash in payment, which it used to buy materials and to pay wages, salaries, interest, taxes, and dividends. And any extra cash that the company gets is used to expand its business and to grow and to provide more goods and services. Profit is the measure of success of the business. Profit shows that the company is managing its affairs in a way that enables it to create more products and services and to pay those wages and salaries to its employees, give its investors a fair return, and provide more opportunity to bring more people into the business. And without profit, a business will wither and die. Now, those comments may seem fairly obvious uh, to some, but they're not without controversy. In the past 15 years, going back to the equal employment opportunity push that began in the mid-60s, business has been expected to assume an ever-increasing role uh, in meeting broader social responsibilities. One prominent chief executive was quoted as saying that the fundamental purpose of a business is to meet social needs. On the other hand, Milton Friedman uh, has made it plain that in his view, a, a business exists only to meet money and has no role in solving the social needs of society. In the 19th and right up until the middle of the 20th century, profit was the primary and probably the only objective of business management, but things have changed. Companies are expected by the investing world on the one hand to make a profit and by the general public on the other to contribute in a substantial way to improving the society within which they exist. In other words, I think both the chief executive who says a business exists to meet social needs and Milton Friedman who says it's only an economic entity are right in today's context. Let me dispel any doubts about my own view on these two points. I think it is the ability to run a business in a way that makes money which in turn is going to determine the ability of that business to exercise its corporate social responsibility in a meaningful way. In other words, only successful companies can act responsibly. Let me say a word now about the relationship between corporate responsibility and the, the broad area of business ethics. A company has a responsibility to a great many constituencies, employees, customers, investors, neighbors, uh, and even cities and nations in some cases. Ethical considerations, by which I mean deciding what is right or wrong in relating to uh, each of these constituencies has to be a primary factor influencing decision-making and corporate action. Being responsible is being important and indeed is the key to being business success. But being responsible in the right way must always be foremost. I'm going to use as I go through this talk uh, probably too many examples about Honeywell uh, but I have to do that because that's my frame of reference. Uh, and in turn, I hope it'll give you some insight into my personal views about the subjects we're going to talk. First, let me quote from a survey that uh, we had made by a professional survey organization that came into the Twin Cities and asked questions. Uh, we assumed that as leaders of a business in this community, we acted in a responsible way. Uh, both here and in other cities in which we have a prominent presence. But we decided to get some independent advice as to whether or not uh, our performance, our view of our performance was shared by other people. 
There were 1,500 people who were asked uh, a series of questions about what they thought about social behavior and corporate responsibility, corporations in general, uh, and ours in particular. And the people in the survey sample were neighbors of ours, citizens at large, civic leaders, and a cross-section of our employees. One of the most interesting set of questions asked was for a ranking of 24 different aspects of corporate responsibility on a scale of utmost importance, somewhat important, and of little importance. The particular questions were asked in a way that related to corporations in general in this series and not specifically to Honeywell. In general, the answer showed that aspects of responsibility relating to cultural activities were low, helping the disadvantaged rank generally in the middle uh, of the activities that uh, corporations should be responsible for. And here are the top five, which were ranked uh, as of utmost importance by 90% or more of the people surveyed. First, with a 98% rating, being honorable and responsible in its business dealings. Second, being a good employer. Third, conserving energy. Fourth, helping fight inflation. And fifth, protecting the environment. In this survey and others I've heard of, general survey of, of people's image of business, a high ethical standard came out as the most important characteristic that those surveyed looked for in a corporation, and by a wide margin in our survey. Other things like helping the disadvantaged, making cultural and educational contributions, maintaining good working conditions, uh, having good pay and benefits, improving the environment, controlling inflation, all important uh, aspects of the activities uh, of a corporation as you would inspect, but expect. But who, uh, who would have expected uh, that honesty and being a good employer were the number one and number two uh, requirements that the people surveyed held out for a business? No company is credible if it doesn't have a solid foundation of integrity, quality, and trustworthiness. In other words, the company is expected to run a straightforward and honest business. The results of the surveys don't surprise me. They serve to reinforce what is a long-held opinion of mine that maintaining a high standard of business ethics has to be at the very top of the responsibilities of a corporate executive as he directs his company or any part of it. Questions about the integrity of business came to the fore in the mid-70s with revelations of illegal political contributions and bribery growing out of the Watergate investigations. This was a traumatic period for more than a few businessmen. It followed closely on the anti-establishment hostility of the Vietnam War and the Cambodian invasion years. The disclosures of misconduct sent anti-business feelings to a new high, or perhaps it was a low. And in my opinion, the business world deserved it. A businessman could do very little about the hostility growing out of the war, but on the subject of illegal political contributions, improper payments, or outright bribes, and the unethical practices that permitted these payments, on those sorts of areas, we had grown slack, careless, and worse yet, in some cases, complacent, by which I mean we overlooked the obvious going on around us. We neglected ethical considerations in the conduct of our business. It should be pointed out that dealing with bribery is not a simple problem for an international company. Our moral values say it is wrong to bribe. The fact that it is illegal in the United States is incidental. But in more than a few countries, bribery is not only not illegal, but is a way of life. In one country, payoffs have been advertised as a way of spreading the riches. This, frankly, for an American executive, should be an easy moral judgment to handle. 
If it's ethically wrong, according to our American standards, it is equally so in other countries, and we shouldn't tolerate or permit a practice of bribery to exist in any place where we're involved. The voluntary disclosures and the prosecutions that went therewith have had, I believe, a good effect on many corporations in causing us to be sure our own house is in complete order. It's had a good effect in making us think about the rightness and wrongness of our practices. And I believe the public image of corporations has improved, in part because we businessmen have gone a long way to purge ourselves of unethical and, in some cases, illegal behavior. The little survey I cited shows that the public expects us to behave in an ethical manner and places the highest level of importance on that aspect of corporate performance. It is, of course, morally right to manage a business in accord with the highest ethical standards. It is legally correct, which leads me to observe, incidentally, uh, that I think there is a tragedy inherent in the fact that laws seem to be necessary to compel some people to do the right thing. The vast majority of businessmen, in my opinion, not only obey the law, but manage their affairs in what would generally be considered an ethically correct manner. There are always exceptions. But I reject the notion that became popular in the mid-70s, namely that government lawyers, bureaucrats, and journalists were necessary to keep businessmen honest. Those keepers of the national conscience may smoke out a few cheaters, but I believe that the vast majority of businessmen don't need public investigators and prosecutors to tell them what is right. Ethical behavior is expected by all our constituents, and I'll state, without taking the time to document the case, that the ethical standard of a corporation directly affects the bottom line, usually in the short run and always in the long. The businessman who straddles a fine line between what is right and what is expedient should remember that it takes years to build a good business reputation, but one false move or one bad decision can destroy that reputation overnight. In any company, large or small, there is always the chance of some employee violating the law and or the company's ethical standards. This may be inadvertent. It may be because the employee gets caught skirting that fine line between what is right and what is expedient. And there are always a few people whose judgment of what is right is faulty or who don't even bother to make that judgment. The pressures of meeting sales quotas with highly lever leveraged commission payments for accomplishment the temptations open to purchasing agents, the pressure on employees in some foreign countries where practices are different than here. All of those may lead to mistaken judgments or downright violation of company policies as well as the law. Failure to observe one important practice, however, in my opinion, is no excuse for violations of the law and company standards. That failure occurs if the company does not regularly openly and vigorously communicate its policies and its standards to its employees. So let me say a few things about getting the word out. In 1976, we published, over the name of the chief executive, a 10-point statement of Honeywell operating principles. This statement hangs on many office walls around the world. It is incorporated in our corporate objectives. It's regularly communicated to employees in the company newspapers. Point 10 reads as follows. Above all, Honeywell believes in the highest ethical standards of doing business and treats its employees, customers, vendors, and shareholders accordingly. In 1977, again over the chief executive's name, we published a 16-point list of Honeywell employee relations principles, which also 
uh, are widely communicated throughout the company. Point three says the highest ethical standards will be followed in the company's relationship with employees. I happen to believe that if a company deals with its own employees with trust, honesty, and integrity, those employees will all the more appreciate the fact that similar conduct is expected of them in dealing with each other and with the outside world. Now let's turn from general considerations of the importance of ethics in business uh, to some more specific examples. First, I want to talk about corporate social responsibility. A basic judgment by the management and the board of directors has to be made that the company will spend effort and money at some expense to earnings in order to do what is right for the communities in which we live. As I said earlier, however, in the long run, money so spent will come back to the bottom line. For many years, our company's corporate responsibility programs concentrated on providing financial support for the health, cultural, educational, civic, and social activities within our communities. We always felt, however, that we should be doing more. So a few years ago, we established a corporate community relations department to act as a catalyst for developing exciting new approaches to corporate responsibility. The Twin Cities survey that I mentioned earlier substantiated our intuitive belief because it showed that straight financial support was far down the list of priorities in our community. We still provide a lot of financial support, of course. We also supply services and equipment, but more important, we loan our most valuable resource, our people. The last point, viewing our people as a major resource for the right kind of social action is the basis for major innovative programs that we've developed with help from our Community Relations Department in the past few years. Some examples of the programs which we encourage as part of our responsibility to be good citizens are the follows. The Special Olympic Games held here in Minneapolis last summer for 500 mentally retarded residents of the Twin Cities. An instructive program in data processing taught to inmates of Massachusetts prisons with significant success in placing released inmates and reducing return trips by those sent out. Teaching useful skills in halfway houses in San Francisco and other cities and helping school students prepare for future careers in inner city New York. And for many years, we've had a similar program here in Central High in Minneapolis. All of these kinds of things and a lot more uh, similar types of activities are done by Honeywell volunteers. Those nominated for a volunteer service award by their fellow employees receive a certificate of accomplishment from the company, and in addition to that, the company makes a $500 contribution to the charity or organization of, of the choice of that employee. Two years ago, we realized we had overlooked one very important group among our employees, those who had retired from active service. We established a program run by retirees of matching their talents to the needs of the community. Retired men and women are a tremendous resource, and our volunteer project has brought over 300 of those people in the Twin Cities in touch with others in our area who need their talents. Let me make another point about these community programs. The enthusiasm with which our employees participate across the country has resulted in a helpful and successful community relationship for the company, obviously. But something much more important it has also been very beneficial for the organizations with which our people have worked and for the employees themselves. We've learned through all of this that a corporation best serves the needs of its community when it does not get directly involved itself, 
that helps others get involved. In a broader way, you may be interested in knowing that corporate responsibility is one area where Twin Cities corporations may be leading the rest of the nation. In 1978, uh, a project, Minnesota project on corporate responsibility was formed uh, by 46 uh, company presidents uh, with a project office and a paid director to do the staff work. The purpose of the Minnesota project was to provide educational programs for executives to give them an insight into the meaning of corporate responsibility. In three years, the Minnesota project has involved 60 companies and more than 600 executives have attended the courses. And this is just an example of where uh, Minnesota companies are out in front nationwide in educating our employees to the responsibility that they exercise. I've used examples of corporate social actions to indicate an area where business becomes socially involved because it is the right thing for business to do so. The moral judgment that such corporate activity should be undertaken is easy. This social involvement does cost money, by which I mean it comes out of profits. In the short run, earnings per share may suffer a modest penalty. But in the long run, strong communities and motivated employees will help corporations prosper. Let me turn to a couple of other examples where the ethical judgment is harder to call uh, but on the other hand, it contrasts with an area where the economic gain and benefit to the corporation is clear and immediate. In other words, the first example penalizes profits in the short run, in the long run, it's helpful. These two examples are places where there are profits to be made in the short run, uh, but the ethical consideration is a rather overpowering one. First, South Africa. This is a many-faceted issue. Uh, that a lot of corporations are facing through shareholders' meetings uh, and public involvement on campuses throughout the United States. But the issue boils down to, in simple terms, uh, to whether or not American companies should invest in South Africa, thus providing some measure of economic support for a repressive political regime. I come out strongly on the side of saying it's the right thing for American companies to do. Uh, not without considerable debate and a lot of consideration about the alternatives because there are different opinions about it. My views are that foreign investment along with the expansion of South African companies creates jobs. And those jobs must be filled by an increasing number of colored and black citizens of South Africa. Those who are so employed enjoy a rising standard of living. In that very fast-growing economy, they fill jobs for which white workers are not available. And thus, they provide a growing source of economic power within South Africa. I also believe that these black and colored workers, now enjoying a somewhat improved economic outlook, are a powerful and growing force for liberalization and change within that country. The recognition of unions of black employees is one example of the kind of change that's underway. So in, in discussing the issue of South Africa with people who raise questions about what we are doing there, I've taken the position uh, that free trade and exchange of ideas and economic investment is the kind of thing that will encourage rising standards of living among the depressed black population of that country and in the long run is a force for change. 
Second area to explore for a minute with you is the defense business, one with which we've had a substantial amount of experience. During the Vietnam War, companies, among them our own, uh, that produced military hardware came under attack for helping make it possible to fight a war that was called by our critics unjust. The criticism of defense contractors, which was led largely by church groups, was on the grounds that the war was not morally justified. Somehow it was claimed if defense contractors stopped producing military products for the U.S. government, the war would come to an end. This was a, a much more difficult issue to direct in an ethical consideration sense than was South Africa, because no one likes wars. And also, it's, it's a fact that intelligent and thoughtful people uh, can, and, and most of our critics were just that, intelligent and thoughtful, can disagree on the rightness or wrongness of the war itself, and hence for supplying weapons when called for by our government. There are also great differences of opinion or views between those of us who were in military service in World War II and those who were drafted in the late 60s to fight a battle for questionable objectives and a battle that, in fact, this country lost. In this case, I came out then and still do on the side of saying the right thing for companies in the defense business, like our own, to do is to respond to the requirements of our government by providing those defense products that our government needs. The issue was not, in my mind, the morality of the Vietnam War or any other war. The issue was responding to the needs of our country to defend its best interests as determined by our elected political leaders. In a free and democratic society like ours, the power of the people to change their political leadership when they disagree is great. Witness the fall of two presidents precipitated by our failure in Vietnam. I'm a patriot, and perhaps some of the younger generation would say an old-fashioned patriot. But I happen to believe it is right to support our nation's government when we're asked to do so, and to vote the rascals out of office when we disagree with them. There are other areas where there is an ethical basis, a right or wrong basis for corporate decisions. Some that come to mind are equal employment opportunity, quality of products and services, fair pricing, openness and honesty in relating to employees and customers. This latter point, incidentally, suggests a whole new area and one that is growing vigorously uh, in terms of the legal involvement of corporations now, the whole area of product liability, which is the responsibility a company bears to the users of a product when a product is defective. Here my opinion is that the problem of defective products should be not acknowledged as soon as detected and vigorous corrective action be undertaken at once, at whatever cost, because it's the right thing to do. The problem is complicated in that many of these product liability decisions are highly technical in nature, and the decision as to what is defective in general, as opposed to what is an isolated problem, may be judgmental or more gray than black and white. In all of these examples I've cited, the corporation has a choice of whether or not to follow basic principles and incur some costs in the process. It's most important to have, set, to have a set of principles which serve as guidelines. Then the action of the company and its executives will indeed be based upon ethical considerations, whether as part of the company's business decisions themselves or as related to the society of which we are part. I believe wholeheartedly that what is good for the public is in turn good for the corporation. 
No business can prosper without being part of a healthy community, be it local, regional, national, or international. The public expects business to contribute in an ethical way to a better life, and it is in our interest as businessmen to do so. Now let's move from specifics to some of the broader moral considerations that underlie the decision-making process in a business. I've tried to make the case that a business is an economic entity that will be measured as a success or a failure based on its profitability. One of the ways to help make that profit is to assure ourselves of a healthy environment in which to run our enterprise. The successful business will be that company which is very conscious of making important decisions on an ethical basis. There will always be a few who skirt the law or who believe that what the law does not prohibit is therefore morally permissible. These people and their companies are not going to last. A business may be an economic entity driven by its profit and loss statement, but it can only exist within a society which has its own values and moral principles. A businessman who chooses to ignore the mores of society will soon find that his economic entity will not survive. Business ethics, like all other ethical considerations in our Western world, are the result of moral, cultural, and religious traditions that we inherited from our Judaic and Christian past. Within our society, there are clearly defined rights and wrongs, and they apply to a businessman just as much as everyone else. These rights and wrongs are derived from a theological and philosophical foundation which provides the basis for ethical conduct. In my experience, I find that a good many economic decisions faced by a businessman also involve moral decisions, where what is right has to be considered. Almost never in my experience, however, have I been faced with a moral dilemma. The facts that support a decision, particularly a moral decision, may at the outset pre present a very confusing set of alternatives. The decision itself may be subject to question. But if the decision-maker has a sound foundation of values derived from our theological and philosophical heritage, the ability to decide what is the right course of action is far easier. Let me go back to the statement of principles I referred to earlier. Every company has its own character or culture or personality. It is surprising to me to have discovered what a powerful influence the chief executive can be in determining what that character or culture or personality turns out to be in the company. The chief executive can set a public record of the standards he expects by word and example. Or, as I fear is the case in, in, of many businessmen, the chief executive may just acquiesce in the standards as they already exist in his company. And in most cases, the right decisions will be made because most people base them on that moral, philosophical uh, value system uh, that we've inherited in our society. But the businessman who acquiesces in things as they are in his company runs the risk of having wrong decisions made because he's not made his standard of ethics clear to his employees. If he goes further and turns his back on unethical behavior around him, before long, that behavior will become a way of life in his company. Having a statement of principles which provides a philosophical basis for decisions affecting the conduct of the company and its relationship to employees is a great help. The statement itself sets forth not moral alternatives, but rather moral imperatives. It defines a code of conduct to be observed in making a decision. It makes the ethical choice easier, and it provides a set of guidelines that distinguishes what is right from what is expedient and clearly wrong. 
There is nothing inconsistent about making ethical decisions and making a profit. In fact, the very survival of our free enterprise economic system depends on business setting and observing a high standard of conduct. Moral considerations in making business decisions must be carefully thought out by business executives so that they establish a broad philosophical basis for deciding and doing what is right while avoiding what is wrong. Once confident of that philosophical base, the decisions are surprisingly easy. Thank you. take a moment now to permit those who must leave to do so, also to give you time, if you've not already used it, to uh, fill out a card if you have a question and to pass it uh, to the aisle for the ushers to pick up. We'll take a moment for those purposes right now. Let me see if I can find the specific reference. In The Mythmakers, Bernard Nossiter tells of a survey by a Jesuit priest of 1,700 readers of the Harvard Business Review. Nearly three-quarters described themselves as members of either top management or middle management. Nearly half said they agreed with a statement that American businessmen tend to ignore ethical laws and are preoccupied chiefly with gain. Four of seven thought that businessmen would breach a code of ethics if they figured they could get away with it, and four of five said that there are practices generally accepted in their own industry which they personally regard as unethical. That's a, quite a, a load, but uh, would you care to respond to that, sir? Thank you. <laughs> in the first place, I wonder if uh, everybody who read uh, Time Magazine's leading article this week on MBAs uh, if everybody in that survey was an MBA, because the article implies that <laughs> that's what you learn in the business schools these days, uh -huh. therefore you'd read the Harvard Business Review. Uh, I think I would, I can't quarrel with the statistics of the survey. Uh, in my experience in talking to other executives, uh, I would say that the figures surprise me, and I would say they grossly distort the true feelings of the people who make decisions in companies. On the other hand, there is a very interesting change that I think is taking place today. There is a great deal more of this kind of discussion, like we're having now, about what are the right and the wrongs, what are the ethical considerations that must be made, not only by the chief executive, but by all other people who are in a decision-making role that affects these kind of things in a company. Uh, if that survey had been taken five years ago in the midst of the Watergate revelations, the figures probably would have been more on the negative side than they even come out. If that survey is taken five years from now, they might come out very much differently and much more on the positive side. Because I think the, the subject of the ethical considerations that we have to take into account, in my view, in, in our decision making, is a subject that must be aired more, must be talked about by more businessmen. A lot of businessmen, too, incidentally, I think uh, uh, Don would, would, in their private lives, 
say, I'm a very ethical man, and yet when they're thinking about the bottom profit and loss statement, they may say, gee, there's some places here where I have to think about my shareholders first or my profit and loss first. But I think there's a trend away from that, more talk about the long-term impact of the business, more talk about the things we should be doing to improve the total environment in which we operate. Uh, and I, my own experience would tell me that the people I deal with would not respond in the percentages that that survey showed. Thank you. Here's a question from the floor. A TV program aired last night suggested that the making of more war machinery increases the likelihood of war. Uh, do you, uh, let's see, do you agree with the premise and would you discuss your general feelings about Honeywell's involvement in war production, their weapon production? I realize you responded in part, but perhaps you'd like to respond the more. I remember going back into history courses in high school and college uh, in which it could be well documented that an arms buildup on one side leads to an arms buildup on the other side, let's say the Rhine River between France and Germany, uh, thinking about World War II, or the United States and Japan in the late 30s and up till 1941. Uh, and I think that point can historically be made. Uh, on the other hand, the the you could go all the way back to the time when prehistoric men clubbed their neighbors with big sticks and say that unfortunately the human being himself is a warlike animal. There was a marvelous book called The Violent Peace, uh, which was written about the time of the Vietnam War and pointed out that uh, uh, following World War II we had the United Nations was formed and uh, peace treaties were signed and then it cited about a dozen or fifteen very violent conflicts that were going on in places like Colombia. Uh, and Chile and Southeast Asia and the Middle East and Africa during that whole period when we were all congratulating ourselves on having brought war to a close. I think there's something more fundamental than just the, the, the building of military weapons themselves. As I said in my talk, I believe that we have to support the objectives of our government uh, and the way to change those objectives if we disagree with our politicians is to change the politicians and that has been done in the past. But until human nature changes, until people uh, on each side of the Iron Curtain, if you will, or on each side of the line between the Muslims and the Christians in Lebanon, if you will, change their vision of how they want to accomplish their objectives by using force to do so, until that changes, uh, I think there are always going to be calls from governments for the means to fight wars and therefore people who respond to it. Uh, as I said in my talk, I happen to believe in, uh, strongly uh, in supporting the objectives of our government. Our company happens to be one that does these things rather well, and thank goodness in World War II we were there to do them well. And who's to say that we might not be faced with that kind of a consideration at some time in the future? Not a happy thing, incidentally, but I think the place to, to make the change uh, is not in the people who are who are building the equipment. The place to make the change is in maybe the fundamental nature of people. Maybe sometime, you know, idealistically, maybe sometime we'll reach a point where the terror that goes with the world we live in will be so realized by people on both sides of the Iron Curtain that each side will back off and not in a nitpicking legal way, but in a broad uh, constructive way that leads to a diversion of resources from this wasteful effort into the kind of efforts that can indeed improve our standards of living. Thank you. 
Thank you for re-preaching my last Sunday sermon. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about it. God, you think I was here and I wasn't. <laughs> Why don't you take the next question? Yeah. <laughs> I think we have to maintain the discipline of uh, the questions go coming this route. And uh, I'd like to read the next one. Can you comment on effective use of incentives to focus the thinking of middle and upper management on long-term instead of short-term objectives, moral, economic, etc.? Thanks. Yeah, I, that is one of the most difficult problems that uh, we face in, in running a business is because the financial disciplines that we're up against uh, bubble forth in the form of a quarterly earnings statements uh, and comparisons with a whole lot of other companies and what they do in that quarter and what they all say about that quarter. So you're really focusing in rather shortly on that. Uh, also, uh, the investing world, and they're the ones that own our stocks, it not, the stock own the companies. It isn't a small group of, uh, it isn't a large group of public shareholders. There may be many out there of a few shares. It's really the pension funds, insurance companies, uh, trust companies, mutual funds, uh, who have large blocks of stock that are the, the people that influence this. And they're the people who make decisions in those organizations as to what to buy and sell are driven by very short-term considerations because their performance is compared every quarter with the performance of the shares that, uh, that they recommend and that in turn gets compared with the performance of some other company and who recommends what for that company. So there are a whole lot of forces that are driving uh, this economic system uh, into a rather short-range consideration of profits. On the other hand, the real reason for existence is to provide goods and services for a long period of time, improving the quality of those goods and services, providing opportunities for an increasing number of people to work uh, in these companies, uh, so that, and to provide for the real long-term health of the business. In the pure mechanical way, companies are moving more and more towards long-term incentive plans, which uh, pay people, award people for what is accomplished over a long period of time instead of just quarter by quarter or year by year. Uh, but there is a fine balancing line, and it's a very difficult thing to balance what is right in the long term versus what you have to produce uh, because of the financial pressures in the short term. I guess I'd come down on the side of saying that uh, the correct thing is to make the right long-term decisions uh, and to take uh, what you have to in the way of criticism in order to get where you want to be in the long run. And of course, as Cain said, in the long run we'll all be dead and those of us who take that view might get fired. Uh, but I think it might be better for the company to run it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, do ethical considerations guide new product development at Honeywell? In a, in a, if, if the questioner wants an answer, does an engineer sit down and, and uh, think about whether he's doing something that is ethically correct or not when he does this or that design? The answer is probably not. On the other hand, everything that he does in a way is affected by the value system of the society of which he's part. To get it down to the specifics as to what the responsibilities of those engineers are and their managers who design products, the specifics are to design products that are safe 
in our case, that happens to be our, uh, our, uh, one of our requirements because a lot of what we do is related to safety. Uh, and therefore, if you mean is it ethically right to design a product that is absolutely safe at a cost that is perhaps higher than it should be, the answer is yes. You've got to come down the side of saying we have to do what is safe. And then we have to sell that product at a price that recovers those costs. And if we don't sell it, uh, we're not going to be making the product. But the prime consideration must be, is the product safe? And to the extent that that is taken into consideration by the people who design it, and it is because that's an absolute requirement within the company, yes, there is an ethical consideration. Mm -hmm. Another question from the floor. Mr. Spencer, how do you view your role as a corporate leader in influencing productivity? You were recently quoted as stating that today's workers are not motivated by the same things as their prior generations. What are you and your corporation doing to find out why today's worker is not highly motivated and what can be done? I think there has been a, a there are a lot of aspects of that, including capital and other things and, and uh, quality circle things and so on that I could talk specifically about. But the more general answer to the question, I think, is that there's a fundamental change that has been going on in this country uh, in recent years and will accelerate in the years to come. There is a much greater need for what I call participative management. Uh, the idea that you could set up a mechanical way of doing things and run the assembly line faster to become more pr productive without explaining to the workers on that assembly line what's involved, I think that day has gone by. Uh, and it's sometimes hard for those, those of us who are uh, who were educated in a different period and whose work ethic was perhaps different than it is for the people coming out of the schools and colleges today to understand that. But I think our, our job as managers is to find a way to, in which we can bring these younger people who are so concerned about uh, the company's objectives and their personal objectives and how the two can be brought together into a way in which they are participating in, in, the, in the management of the business. They can't all be managers, but they can all suggest ways in which the company can work better, in which cooperation becomes better. So I, I lump a lot of these things and the mechanical ways of getting them done under the, the heading of par participative management as opposed to what you might call a more totalitarian kind of management, which I think is the way most of us started our business careers. Another question from the floor. Are there circumstances you can envision where a corporation should refuse a government request based on moral considerations? You seem to imply that the only recourse was to vote the rascals out. Does your answer change if you're dealing with a foreign government? Yeah, I think uh, uh, particularly the latter point about how do you deal with a, a foreign government where the standards of what is right and wrong may be quite different than they are in the United States. In that case, I think the company is absolutely correct in saying, no, we will not accept that piece of business. We will not do business in that way. Uh, in the case of our own government, I think it, it's, it's a little bit the ethical consideration. We were asked to do something that we felt as managers of our business was unethical regardless of the effect on the bottom line. We would not do it. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, I think the, the issue of what our government needs and requires as related again back into the defense products business is a case where I don't feel the, the issue is an ethical one for our company in that case. Mm -hmm. This uh, comes right on top of what you've just said. 
how do you view efforts by the religious community to influence corporate policy, such as the shareholder actions coordinated by the Interfaith Center for Corporate Responsibility? Are these efforts appropriate, realistic, effective? Yeah, I think all of those efforts, provided they're conducted uh, in what I would like to call an unemotional and factual way, are productive and are helpful. And they do force us to think through our positions. Uh, and in fact, uh, over the years, I've enjoyed the debate and discussion with uh, particularly church groups who have challenged some of the things we do. Uh, and I think it's entirely appropriate to do so. A corporation is a public body, and it, in my opinion, has to stand up and justify its performance in the eyes of the public. And as I said earlier in my remarks, that goes far beyond uh, just the bottom line and the profit and loss statement. Uh, so I think it's entirely appropriate to have uh, shareholders' resolutions and to debate and discuss those issues. And as I say, I think it has uh, caused a lot of us to think this, the, the whole rightness and wrongness issue through a great deal more than we would have done, perhaps, if there had not been those outside pressures. It doesn't mean that I welcome a lot of questions at the shareholders' meeting, but on the, <laughs> but on the other hand, I think it's, it's a responsibility we have to bear as the heads of big corporations. Here's a nitty-gritty one. Many large corporations consistently stretch accounts payable beyond the credit term, such as pay in 30 days, <laughs> expected by their suppliers. Is this ethical? How can the small company cope with delinquent accounts like these? Well, some big companies go broke too, you know, so uh, <laughs> it isn't only the small ones. And that's more of an economic trade-off issue than I think it is an ethical issue. Yeah. Has Western business so succeeded in providing material goods that in stimulating such wants, business accelerates a cultural materialism which erodes ethics? That's a... Why don't you read that one again? <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to put my glasses Has on. Has Western business so succeeded in providing material goods that in stimulating such wants, yeah, business yeah. Accel accelerates a cultural material in which erodes ethics? Oh, I don't know. I think uh, in many ways business responds to needs and requirements, and I have a hard time believing that uh, just because uh, there's a comfortable automobile or a new Betamax uh, tape recorder in your home, which could be looked upon as highly materialistic. In fact, you had to go buy a thing that is a piece of material and it improves your, your comforts or your standards. Uh, I have a hard time believing that that type of thing has broken down ethical standards. In fact, you know, I think it's two completely different issues. And uh, as I've said earlier, uh, I think the, there is somewhat of a revival going on of, uh, in the area of, of moral values uh, as we make our decisions. Uh, and materialism is a different issue entirely, in my view. Mm -hmm. How can we be assured that contributions to political candidates will be made on a basis broader than, say, just Honeywell's interest? Well, I don't know how you can assure that, uh, except that I can tell you that uh, most of us who make political contributions personally or whose companies make them through political action committees, uh, make them to candidates uh, for political office who we know and we like. Uh, and I personally would support uh, a political candidate from whatever party if I was sure that he was an ethical, honest kind of a person and was the kind of man I wanted in that office. The political party makes less importance to us. If there is a person who is unethical or is deemed to be a person who 
engages in abscam type of activities to take a current example i don't think we've got any business supporting him regardless of his views if time for perhaps two three or more questions if shareholders own the corporations shouldn't they have the option of donating to the charity of their choice in other words why should the corporation preempt the right of the stockholders to give well, if we pay enough dividends, they have plenty of opportunity to give to the charity of their choice. <laughs> Somebody has to make decisions in these cases. Though so we would welcome shareholders writing in and saying, gee, why don't you do this or that? But somebody has to decide these things, and, uh, and that is usually done by the board of a foundation that is uh, in turn funded by companies like ours. Honeywell, this questioner asks or says, Honeywell is sending work overseas into other countries to take advantage of the much lower labor costs available. This action removes work from American workers. Honeywell is a multinational company, but some of this work is going to areas only for the low labor rates. Are the workers realizing decent wages, or are the uh, uh, middlemen exploiting the workers? Uh, what are the company ethics involved? Yeah, I think the, the question of the movement of product from, you know, whether you do it in the in North Carolina or California or Thailand or Minnesota is, a, is I don't look on that as again an issue that has a rightness or wrongness about it in an ethical sense. What is really happening uh, is uh, that because of the standard of living in this country being high and in other countries like ours, because wages and salaries are high relative to some other countries, many other, most other countries, uh, there is a shift of the, the electrical and mechanical type of factory assembly lines and big machine shops to places where that work can be done more productively at lower cost. But at the same time, there is a, a tremendous movement in this country into the more intellectual type of jobs. An awful lot of people coming out of uh, schools and colleges today are going into software business and computer business and very sophisticated electronics business and a lot of things that uh, really open up whole new avenues of job opportunities. So in the advanced industrial world, you have a shift from the old uh, type of assembly line, make hardware type of operations into more brain kind of jobs. And it creates a big problem in the short run because you have people who have difficulty being trained in those new things. But the new young people coming out of the schools and colleges find a lot of opportunity in very different kind of occupations than their fathers and mothers did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you reconcile the apparent conflict created by attempting to inflict our U.S. moral ethical values on parts of the world where such values are not accepted? Isn't that approach in itself unethical? <laughs> That's a... <laughs> it's surprising there's some changes going on in other parts of the world, too, and I think some of the, the effects of uh, American companies in changing their ways of doing business, particularly in Latin America in recent years, has had an effect on what's going on in those countries. I'm not sure it's an inflicting our way on those countries, Latin America I'm talking about now, because after all, they came from the same sort of religious tradition that we all did. So. I think perhaps one, one more question. How do you assure yourself that your convictions are being upheld by your employees down to the lowest level in daily contacts with the general public? This must be difficult with a company the size of Honeywell. There are many people who represent you and the company in business dealings daily. I have a lot of faith. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, sir, we, we thank you for coming to us. We uh, applaud you for 
being very direct and not ducking any of the hard questions. It's obvious that you worked hard on that statement and, and that you live it, and we thank you for being with us. Thank <laughs> you.